One evening in September 1954, hundreds of children swarmed to Glasgow's southern necropolis, armed with knives and stakes and dogs. They were hunting the Gorbals vampire, who they said had already devoured two small boys. Police were called to intervene and were unmoved by explanations that this was merely an act of self-defence. Children, of course, naturally know when they are being hunted and when to take up arms. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask some of the UK's brightest and best poets to choose a myth or a folktale or a fairy story that they want to preserve for future generations, saving it from rising waters or from nuclear disaster or from our collective capacity to forget everything. What we want to know is what stories they want to leave behind for whatever kind of civilizations or smoking remains come next. They've rewritten and reworked these stories, they've unpacked them and jigsawed them back together, and it is my pleasure to bring you the results. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, uh, trying and failing to hide all of the world's wisdom at the top of a thorny silk cotton tree, and struggling in my spiderweb this week are Kate Denere, Leke Oso Alabi, and Rachel Long. First up, we have Kate Denere. Hello, Kate. How are you doing? Hi, Eleanor. I'm good. So Kate is a freelance writer and a sub-editor for the Economist Intelligence Unit's Middle East and Africa team. And in 2016, she completed a Faber Academy course in poetry and has been writing pretty much compulsively ever since. And so um, tell us about the story that you've chosen. I've chosen to rewrite the story of Melusine, which is a legend from the Middle Ages um, from northern France about a water spirit, um, a woman who lives six days a week, and on the seventh day, Saturday, she turns into a serpent from the waist down. Naturally. Yes. (laughs) Brilliant. I can't wait. Take it away. Melusine. On the stone sill from which she leapt, there's an inscription of her foot. Big for a woman, five toes, broad, eloquent bones. Her husband locked the room. It leached colour. The clothes pile peeled to silt, the bedspread was eaten through. Stones began to fall. Green air picked at the house until it was a nest of holes, fragile as a sponge skeleton. When it all came down, grass grew over it, red dead nettle. They make a garden of it. I visit, the only tourist in an empty town. She got hers for audacity, locking her father in a mountain. Once a week on Saturday, she becomes serpent from the waist down. That's the pathology of her curse. When her mother said the words, a distant part of her split like damp paper, and there were two, her and the hex. At first she suffered in her skin, three months with her right cheek wet. Then she began to learn the shimmer of nerves, graduated to Tanner. From a small box she unfurls a strip of deer hide, Mint to nose, she makes of it a looping, sparkling river. When she meets Raymond, she's got sensation licked. He's got cast-down eyes. His touch is like the brush of an electric eel. The shock sets her tongue going. My Coney will be more to each other than hand-on-hand spiriting into water. No one in the Melusine Pizzeria or the Melusine Beauty Parlour. No one in the garden, anodyne, according to one reviewer. A winter full of oak leaves binned in her tower. One blackened tea light. Pretty much what I imagine no footprints or aura. 
Back in the town, the houses are pale grey, tight-lipped. The trees cut back seem pent for it, each covered in gold-green moss. They marry beside a tree. She dips and twitches like a dousing rod. Her jacket matches the leaves. Their hands are wrapped in ochre silk. Raymond's face is like a girl's. She says she'll build him castles, bear him kings. For this she asks only one thing. Saturdays to herself, no questions asked. She raises palaces, has babies, each stranger than the last. One has a tooth like a fridge door. Another's cheek bears the weight of a lion's paw. Her skin's warm broth being a mother. Don't look in on me on Saturday. Don't hanker for the bright limestone of La Rochelle. Don't tell anyone. Don't look in the box in the attic under the old beach towels. Don't eat my chips. Don't say his name out loud. Don't tie a knot in this situation. Don't pull at that yellow thread just there. Don't play with your hair. Don't make a scene, don't shoplift, don't stare. Don't let a man get the better of you or a woman. Don't you dare. Behind the door, in clouding water, Melusine lay. Saturday spent in the bathhouse, unwinding. Eyes closed, shapeless pool of colour, tang of seashore on her lips, needlepoint quiet. At the base of her breath, the shud of sea, miles of distance, not a living thing, her skin limestone dissolving. Voices at the water's edge, babies, hands full of bladderwrack, swift collapse of worry. She rinses her hair, stewing over her babies. Kicks her tail into questions, flicks water to the ceiling to see the patterns, liquid sound pinballing. The mirror steams over her reflection, behind the door. Ear to the door, he hears geometry, two bodies. The room's his heart, its tall chambers, dark ceiling. He knows his heart. My host asks if I found the spirit of the Fae. I found a good patisserie. I bought a religieuse and ate it in sticky finger privacy. The whole town sheet mirror, river, rain-slit windows, glassy eyes. I was looking for stones or words or something. I was looking to walk the bodies out, arms that move without movement, a foot resting partly on a foot. He looks, of course, who wouldn't bring a story to its natural end, cross the line, shatter the sea mark. He stops the hole, wears her soul about his shoulders like a damp towel. Keeps quiet until what he's seen burrows up into his mouth. He calls her serpent, phantom. It lands, she folds. The story or spell or whatever its name unlinks from her body and goes. Wet. Her face when she jumps splits open to reveal a new face. Is it more lovely? Pupils slits, jaw a vessel. Cold. Two wings unfold scaled like a shipwreck. She starts to puzzle herself into this. Porous, as before, words drain. What's left, her voice, and a part so small it almost. Earth and water, she couldn't scratch her name into a wall. This tower exists for threat. North and west, in wind, her voice, a net, catches fish, slams them into stone. Unbounded, the way she makes herself known. Soars up from the sea, along the wall's curve, Clatters through grills, swings open my head, breaks into a high, wailing wind. Mutable. If you ever struggle to divide a human from some stirred-up air, 
you've met Melusine. Thank you. That was that was beautiful. Um, and listening to you, I was wondering what it was about this myth in particular that appealed to you, especially given that similar tropes of women shedding their skins and becoming sea creatures at night do tend to crop up um, all over the world. So, yeah, what was it about Melusine that uh, appealed to you? Um, I think I found her relationship with her husband um, really interesting. Um, there's a inherent tension there um, in that he's not allowed to look in on her on, on Saturday. And um, that seemed to spark off lots of ideas about um, privacy and selfhood and discreetness in relation to um, relationships and uh, sharing with people and communion. Um, and that kind of tension between how you navigate those two aspects of a relationship. Um, so that that was um, what appealed to me at the heart of the um, the story. And there does seem to be this idea that at the beginning she experiences the curse as a kind of fracture, as a kind of dissociation from a sense of self, but you could read the myth through the lens of the husband being some kind of uncomplicatedly villainous character. But in your retelling, he becomes this, you know, at least at first, a kind of a, a, a vehicle of self-fulfillment for her. Yeah. Um, I think I, I mean, I feel like I didn't do the husband uh, justice, really. Um, well, he's he gets a few lines and that's it. But he's an interesting character in his own right, um, that uh, being forbidden not to look in on her and not to know her true nature. So I don't see him as villainous or even, um, uh, how did you put it, um, redeeming her in any way. I just saw it as, read it as a more uh, human relationship between them and how they, they navigate that. I mean, that is a distinctive current throughout the piece in that there isn't this easy dualism between the monstrousness of her of her life as some kind of serpent and the purity and holiness of her life as wife and mother, etc., etc. She does seem to sort of glory in these private Saturdays where she can be as monstrous and beastly as she likes. There's something incredibly relatable about that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that's um, incredibly human about the tale, even though it's, you know, obviously fantastical. I think she is a, a very relatable um, character and that that feeling of um, being someone inside a changeable body and um, that idea was really interesting to me and how she navigates herself and figures herself into this body that's always changing and she can't control I found that aspect um, yeah really interesting it's funny that you pick up on the idea that this isn't something that she can control because of course there is a, a lot of power play animating the central drama of it not just that she um, especially in your retelling, takes up quite a, a regal kind of role, right? She's building castles. She is the sort of matriarch mm. figure, especially because um, in your retelling, the husband sort of drops off the scene for a lot of for a lot of the action. And it's mainly like the main relationship really is between herself and like and her body sort of thing. And that that sort of tussle, which could be reinscribed as a kind of encapsulation of I don't know, what gender politics looks like in 
northern medieval France, for instance, right? But I think there is something beyond that about the relationship between um, like a woman and and her own body. And there is a sense in which um, it's only being able to transform into a snake that like allows her to be like fully comfortable with just being just being human. Yeah. So when I was reading about medieval ideas about the body um it struck me that there was um quite an openness to its changeability which contrasts with um the way that it's seen nowadays or can be presented nowadays as sort of a um sanitization of the body or an unwillingness to look at the fact that the body is changeable and can't be controlled a lot of the time um so that struck me as something interesting and also as a sort of a, a source of energy when I was writing that openness to to change yeah and there is something about the porousness between the bounds of the human and the animal or the kind of civilizational and the natural that does open up this uh, space of play and it kind of reminded me of um the way that Walt Whitman plays around with writing through animal experiences in order to return to something that feels more authentic because he's grappling with this self-alienated state of being, especially at the time that he's writing. It's a time of great industrialization and that kind of thing. The idea that we could be much more animal than we are at first inclined to think is quite a powerful one. So when I was doing my research, I, I read something by Claude Levo-Strauss where he says animals are good to think with. And that's definitely um, a line I was really interested in with my research, um, reading stories about human metamorphosis into animal or non-human form, but retaining consciousness. And there's, there's first this real pathos to it, but it's also, as you say, a really interesting way to explore the way we navigate ourselves in in relation to our to our bodies and our our environments. So when you say that there's a pathos to this way of thinking, what do you mean by that? Not exactly a pathos in the way of thinking, but in those stories, um, for example, Callisto with the Greek myths, um, there's just an inherent pathos in a human consciousness being retained inside a changed body. And within that change body, I think specifically the loss of voice, which happens to Melusine as well. I just mean that there's there's pathos in terms of that. Yeah, in terms of being trapped, I yes. guess, which figures into again this sort of tussle of power that's you know at the at the heart of the drama of the myth, yes. as it were. Um, and it is that that terrifying prospect, right? And it is a very a very feminine thing. Right, as you point out, in many, many myths, we see um, uh, either women deprived of voice by transforming into animals, or um, women being deprived of their voice in human form, and then only being able to testify, usually to the violence that's done against them, right, um, by transforming into animals and speaking in the language of animals. I don't know, you'll have a bird who perches on the windowsill of whoever did her in, that kind of thing. So a lot of the themes seem very modern. Do you think there's a sense of like urgency behind why you wanted to choose this particular story? Um, so I think this story is really interesting in terms of its openness to bodies that change, bodies that are mutable. 
And I was thinking about that in relation to pathology and disease and the way bodies can change in that way. So I think the story is a really powerful way of exploring how we figure ourselves into bodies in those terms. Kate, thank you. Leke Osoalabi is a writer, a Barbican young poet, and he's currently working on a project with the Multi-Story Orchestra. Hello. Hey, Elena. How are you? I am doing great. Good, good. I am really excited to hear your story. I believe you've chosen to speak about Menelik. Yes. So um, we've, we've come a long way with this poem. The starting point was really looking at the story of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And the starting point was the Song of Solomon, um, which is a conversation between a lover and his beloved. And the beloved is often um, associated with the Queen of Sheba um, due to one particular line, which is, I am black but comely. And and the sort of cultural ideas around beauty um, that's embedded in that kind of got me thinking about what what happens when you bring two people together. I've kind of gone in a different direction with it. And and I've, I've explored... Um, the idea of two political ideologies coming together and I've also drawn a lot from the Ethiopian tradition which suggests that um, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba had a son called Menelik I who became the first um, ruler of the Solomonic dynasty so that's kind of I've done a modern retelling of that and, and that's, that, that's sort of the, the history the long journey of, of, of my thinking process Brilliant Do black poets write too many poems about death? Who gets thrown under the bus? In every moment, there is always a sacrifice. And at the spoken word night, that is often the idea of the black body. Is my life just collateral damage? Raised by two warring factions. My dad, he's a self-professed saviour of the English believes his blood is redder. He's not racist, but he has come down to march this morning. He's not racist, but he says they're not like us. He says they come over here and get everything. In this green and pleasant land, in this new Jerusalem, he prides himself on spitting salt, words that breathe on the back of your neck. And when it's really late, and the street lamps turn the pavements into wings and the road into a stage awaiting the daily performance of the commute. I think about the blood, the men in tin hats, that silence and that peace is built upon, bodies that litter battlefields like nail clippings. Still, my mum tells me that the men who dug up the tin that formed the helmets in World War II were Nigerian, were forced into mines, So maybe both sides of me are connected by a sense of loss. I drove past Wood Lane Station the other day, past Grenfell, and it made me think of a scene from the Bible and the ways in which we make symbols out of tragedy. It reminded me of a crucifix and a crucifixion, of a God sacrificing himself or sacrificing his son So much brutality compressed into one dense image, something that is hard to look at and look away from. But Grenfell wasn't a sacrifice. Someone once told me 
that the council placed those buildings behind flammable cladding to create the veneer of a life. They placed those people behind plastic cladding for the reason we get veneers fitted at the dentist, to hide the signs of age, to create the impression of good living. The dental record is something that might be used to identify you when you pass on. Mine will say, two fillings in his lower jaw and one root canal. It will not say, he stares at a light bulb for five seconds, watches the filament burn, those electric white pangs, he blinks, he bites down and feels his molar bend. A few weeks later, there's a smell of a dying nerve. It will give the headline, but not the story. Can you ever really know a person? My mum says I write like her father, and that makes me wonder, what is my source material? Which ancestor sent the ripple to? I'm stalking the mirror at night, trying to turn the husk of the day into something that prepares me for the week ahead. When I peel back the layers, all I'm left with is a series of questions. That was beautiful. So this poem has gone through a lot of different iterations. It's no wonder giving the richness and diversity of the source texts you're drawing from, from like, you know, contemporary politics to Ethiopian sort of legends and classical biblical mythology. So in order to explore that, I was wondering why you made Menelik a poet, because that's not in the source text. Yeah, I think um, for me, I wanted to really ground whatever I sort of decided to explore in our kind of current socio-political climate. Um, and and so for me, looking at the politics um, in the UK and, and, and the politics of, of poetry in the UK be- became a really interesting and exciting vehicle into exploring all of these all of these issues, particularly because you know, as you know, as as, as we as we spoke about, as I submitted the first drafts, there were there were there were conversations and there were edits, and I kind of wanted to really try and, and and incorporate as much of that into the resultant pieces because I, I I feel as though the the politics that those conversations revealed about the poetry scene spoke to what I was trying to explore, which is this tension between the left and the right in the in, in the country, as embodied in this character Menelik, who's trying to make sense of his parents' differing ideologies and trying to form his own in the midst of that. Because it was very interesting to watch this poem evolve kind of from a distance, really, to see that wrangling that you went through when you were dealing with some really charged and difficult subjects, particularly um, in the... uh, in the first person kind of thing, because you're you're speaking as I, you're speaking in the voice of Menelik, and especially when people assume that um, all poems are somehow personal testimony, it does feel like this quite uncertain, vulnerable process of you laying a claim to like, this is absolutely what I think forever about this incredibly difficult and fraught topic, particularly when it's grounded in or, you know, ancestrally at least grounded in 
a, a love story and the question is like okay how can how can the domestic and the love and desire capture what are these enormous kind of political questions yeah i mean i, I that that has it's yeah it's it's been a really interesting process and a really interesting struggle and and i, and I feel like i've definitely grown as a person and I think processed some things through the writing of it um I th you know even I think just going back to the Song of Solomon and and reading it and 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 knowing that initially you know what drew me to it was was that line about you know black but comely but then when I actually read the whole of it I actually f I actually felt like actually that you know my the the overarching the overall feeling I had it, it I wasn't really drawn to that line anymore it was more the ways in which that that it, it it just felt like a like an ancient love song like it felt like a you know you could you could really see how like you know this idea of like tragic love like that's in like you know Adele or Lauren Hill or all of these people how it really is it's, it's all there because it's like as well as the the relationship between you know the love and the beloved there's all there, there are these moments where you know the um the beloved talks about being deserted and being you know left alone and all of this sort of stuff and and so for me, when i actually read when i when i read it in its entirety i actually i actually felt like to kind of even to zero in on that line would wouldn't really be me kind of it, it, would, it wouldn't it wouldn't i don't think it would have been fair to the source text actually um but I, I, but I think the, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to wanted to do was to write about some some of the current socio political issues, and so I, I, you know, I had this, I had I had this, this mythology or or these series of 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 shared mythologies um, in in different kind of uh, cultural contexts, where, you know, whether it's the the, um, the Jewish Bible, Christian Bible, it's in the Quran, it's it's in the Ethiopian. Um, there's you know, the Ethiopian national story as well. So I, I, I had that and then I had this this desire to explore the politics and I was just trying to find a way in which I could I could bring those two things together. Um, and, and that's why I think, yeah, that's why it was such a, a convoluted process. Um, but I, I think I think, you know, yeah, the, the context of a, of a love story, I think, is. It's it's interesting and it's challenging um, because I I, th I think in this country and in and in and in lots of countries around the world we have to find a way to coexist like we have to you know um, I I I, th I think this I think this ever increasing polarization is is very problematic so um, the idea of you know maybe maybe romantic love was maybe it was too far I don't know but the idea of friendship or coexistence or conversation or I think that's something that's it's important that we that we start having that we start having conversation about how do we um how do we find a way to form exchanges or relationships or conversations with people who have different opinions to us and i think i think you know it's 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 a, it's a difficult thing it is it, it, something that i i feel like i've come to a conclusion on yet but 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 that's the that's the context in which i was trying to write the write the poem and i think poems as a kind of mode of doubt and uncertainty are a useful way of thinking through those problems precisely because they're a way of I guess embracing uncertainty and staying with the trouble and um, allowing space for doubt and to say that actually no this is this is a continually evolving process there is that cliche of um, a poem is 
never finished it's only it's only ever abandoned and there is a thought that continually needs refining and there is something uh, particularly in that um approaching it from the perspective of the results if you like of a love story does force us to address the quite difficult question of whether love in any sense you know friendships romance that kind of thing can ever be purified of the of their political context and the extent to which desire is you know ultimately sculpted by and you know soaked in all of our cultural preoccupations i think the way you read the song of solomon is very interesting because you know it's it poses the question of you know how much does that line um the black but comely uh, where the word but implies that you know blackness is inherently undesirable which is obviously a kind of very damaging cultural preoccupation which we still have today like how much does that taint the possibility of like an actual you know genuine romantic reconciliation and like and how and how far does forgiveness go right i re- i really want to try and and write poems that that do something um and 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 i and i think that you know i think part of the reason why i kind of veered away from that line is because firstly i think there's just there there are so many debates about what that line means um and and actually i just wasn't even sure if 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 i wanted to kind of open all of that up um and yeah i should pro- you know i should i think yeah i should probably mention that in the line you know some people do attribute some people do identify the beloved as the queen of sheba but there are many people th- that will say that that's incorrect and that actually what they were talking about is tan you know um the beloved has tanned skin and even even that is 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 a certain cultural attitude towards beauty um and but but that but that reading is perhaps the more accurate one um but nonetheless i you know wait did you I mean I think I think nonetheless I kind of wanted to to move away from that because when once I once I once I finished reading Song of Solomon and I actually felt something different to what I what I felt when I zeroed in on that line which was which was the idea of this um I I felt like it was very connected to our modern day in, explorations of love um so so yeah, so when when I read it and I and I thought, okay, this is really about tragic love, and then when I also considered how in the Ethi- in in the Ethiopian tradition there isn't, to my knowledge, there isn't this idea of like, um, kind of, I I, I don't I don't get the impression that it, the, the relationship between King Solomon and Queen of Sheba is thought of as this really kind of contemptuous or really difficult moment. It's actually a moment of union, you know, it's a moment of union for the nation, and I and I thought actually that's really powerful that you could have you know, um, a, a work of art, a piece of writing that forms the basis of union for people from different places or people who have different ideas or people who have different religious beliefs. And I thought that's that's just an incredibly powerful idea that art can play that role in society. Um, and, and that's why, I be, you know, and again, it's, it's just, it's obviously very difficult because of your, there are lots of issues in there. There's race, there's gender, but, but I think that's, why I, I began to kind of consider, you know, um, what 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 does that point of union mean, you know, and and 
and um yeah i just kind of i just kind of wanted to kind of rather than really having this quite difficult and quite uncomfortable and quite you know painful i potentially conversation around that particular line um particularly when there are so many inter- interpretations of what that line means i thought it it, it it would be i thought it would be more worthwhile to have a conversation around what what their potential union could represent and what their potential union as as embodied in the Ethiopian tradition sort of represents. And I want to pick up on that line connected by a sense of loss and um, how your use of, I guess, like modern mythologies, such as, you know, the like heroism of World War Two allows space for that kind of reconciliation or that sort of tying together of histories when you can go, oh, actually, you know, obviously, you know, the kind of white British Tommy suffered a lot in World War Two, but there were also there was also an enormous amount of suffering from the people who were mining the tin to make the helmets that eventually they got shot through. Even even that line I was like, oh I don't know if I can write that. I don't you know, I because I'm not trying to say that I wasn't trying to romanticize anything or to say that that that, that makes the the devaluing of people acceptable. But what I was trying to suggest in that in that moment in that space was that I think both sides of the political spectrum there is this feeling of loss there is this feeling of we are aggrieved because we have lost something and I think if we can kind of at least recognize that that could potentially be a powerful thing and I think if we can also recognize that people have their own narratives and and different narratives and and to and to and to see where those narratives connect I think that could be a potentially powerful thing. Mm. When you talk about um, not wanting to romanticise the devaluing of life, there is this question running through the poem about how we talk about trauma, especially in art, and I guess especially in you know commercial art or art that you know that people make a living off in any sense of like you know how do you balance the responsibility of talking about trauma versus tokenizing that trauma and you know and, and who who gets to talk about that really who gets to make symbols of what were once you know real living and breathing people with their own stories and i don't i don't i don't even know if i know the answer to that question yet because i think it's uh, you know i it's definitely something that i'm processing and thinking about and 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 just you know even yeah, it's, it's definitely something I'm processing and I'm thinking about. And um, there is a reference to Grenfell inside the poem as well. And, you know, I, and I don't even know if I've properly unpicked what I was really trying to say. But I think, you know, you know, we walk around the city sometimes and there will be, you know, there'll be a crucifix outside a church or there will be a crucifix in people's homes. And it's like, you know, what is that actually depicting? That's depicting a crucifixion. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's such a... A brutal thing um but i think because we're, it's almost become part of like the fabric of the city that we just don't even see it anymore um and and so I, yeah i i think i think the ways in which when you kind of repeat something over and over again it just kind of becomes a symbol and and how it kind of loses its its, its power to kind of to to shock and to awe people um is something that i've that I've been thinking about and you know I, I definitely want to as I said you know in, in in 
in future versions of this poem, maybe that won't even be there because maybe I will I will feel differently as I talk to more people and 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 I and I I feel like you know some people feel like poet poet poets can be separate from from the action but I'm starting to feel that actually poetry has to be very much connected to you have to live your ideology and so um sorry so um as I talk to more people and as I, and as I, hopefully as I try to do more work which reflects my values I think that will that will shape the future versions of this of this poem and and other things I write in the future fingers crossed yeah I love the way that you pointing out uh, how ultimately strange it is for us to have crucifixes up you know up around the place it makes you think of like oh my goodness yeah my my nan would occasionally wear a necklace with essentially a corpse on it, and how and how fundamentally weird and warped it is that how this process of retelling is about you know is a process of desensitization to you know the, this kind of violence really and this trauma, and I mean there is a kind of a real uh, a real compromise there of like you know in one sense it gives us an opportunity to talk about violence and to look at it directly in the eye because it's not so immediately traumatizing but at the same time it's incredibly dehumanizing for the you know the actual people involved i mean yeah we could have a long conversation um, i i think that you know i i think i think the making of symbols can can, can be an extraordinarily powerful thing you know there there are the symbols that that contain a certain amount of brutality or contain a certain amount of uh you know that 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 feel extreme in some way but then but then i think there are there are also symbols um like the kind of ethiopian national story or i don't even know if i should what like the ethiopian let me just stick with the ethiopian national story um that are also about union and also about coming together and are, and are also about um, yeah that, you know are also about two peoples coming together and I think that that's you know that's an, that's an extraordinary power that I think um, that writers have and and I, and I think it's really interesting as well like to think about the tradition of like you know illuminating manuscripts and of like tapestries and all of these sorts of kind of traditional um, crafts that that you know um were once practiced quite or th- that were once like the, the 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 medium through which we talked about history in this country or we talked about culture in this country and 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 the ways in which they they often kind of articulated a national story i'm really fascinated by that and I, you know i think there should be like a modern day Bayer's tapestry you know what i mean that kind of explore like all the different ideas and beliefs and peoples and that that live in britain i feel like we we should we should try and find ways that that the artists can kind of um, uh, continue that tradition. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Next up, we have Rachel Long. Rachel is a prize-winning poet and the founder of Octavia, a poetry collective for women of colour housed at the Southbank Centre. She's also an assistant tutor to Jacob Sam Rose on the Barbican Young Poets Programme. Hello, Rachel. Hey. Lovely hey, to have you here. Lovely to be here. So, can you tell us what story you've chosen? Um, I have chosen um, a... It's not a traditional story. It's uh, it's 
I've focused really on kind of family myth. Um, the myths that we make um, in our, yeah, in our kind of private homes or between uh, a parent to a child or even between siblings and the things that sort of become three quarters truth. Brilliant. Can't wait. You take it away. Open. This morning he told me I sleep with my mouth open and my hands in my hair. I say, what, like screaming? He says no, like abandon. Night is a short film you commissioned, a redneck curtain billowing in slow-mo. At 1.22, a girl's face appears behind it, two brown hands, the cameras, reach out, find only fabric. They are with us in this room. Mum taught me how to feel them on my back. How to plead the blood, thumb, seven crosses between my blades in the centre of my forehead. She didn't teach me how to lose them on my way home from Sainsbury's. If you can't find a tree, walk three times around a parked car. Don't look in the windows, don't smoke till you get home. They are attracted to sadness. I can still only tell if mum is laughing or crying by her breasts, up down for laughing, up down then into a heavy sway for crying. Remember why you'd eat two dinners, then as many broken biscuits as it took to taste metal on the bridge of your mouth. You knew somehow that to die was to be hungry. You once thought heaven was a shack on a cloud Mary, smiling serene, walking between the rows of scythed corn laid out on the bare floorboards. You kept trying to get up, like the only live crab in a box. Each night she squeezes your shoulder, says, stay down. She has the voice of a social worker. This morning she told me I sleep with my mouth open and my hands in my hair. I say, what, like screaming? She says, no, like abandon. Seventh night. Mum said Auntie Verna tried to palm her cancer off. High up witches can do that, see a sickness coming and deflect it. Mum was driven to the seaside to bathe at dawn, then back to the corrugated church where she was placed shivering before the Lord, her body outlined with candles instead of chalk. For seven days and seven nights, she lay in the rain of their ceaseless prayers. She'd forgotten the language of her girlhood, but there, on the floor, remembered three words and repeated... Amen, Jesu, Christi. She rose, only to use the bathroom and the payphone once to call her agency. I won't be available this week. I'm sorry. After the honey and holy water were sipped from an upturned bell and the last candle had crackled, pulled, the police arrived to carry mum to the altar which was, she saw, as she got closer, an operating table. 
I should say that in dreams, visions, parallel realities, the police are angels. The tallest wielded a scalpel, made an incision beneath her breast, and from that new smile dragged handfuls of teeth out. It took them all night, but night there was so bright. In the morning she told me I sleep with my mouth open and my hands in my hair. I say, what mum, like screaming? She says, no baby, like abandon. Thank you, that was wonderful. So I was wondering how you arrived at the story that you chose or the kind of way of approaching the idea of stories, I guess, because I know you came into this sort of via the myth of banshees. Mm. Yeah, I still I still want to explore banshees in the workshop that we had, um, which was ridiculously helpful and kind of in a way I am going to write all of those poems, like all of the directions that I went off. But just in the time or I feel like I have to wait to catch up with that poem or the poem has to hurry up or something but there's something about the time and the and the space and the I, I I was thinking of banshees um from this so I went to the root first to find out why that I why I was drawn to to the myth of banshees anyway it's kind of women screaming and that's I think where the refrain came from like what it means to scream or, or what what a scream is communicating and when you scream is it is it a scream or is it something else? Like so, so having your mouth open. Like, is it, is it a sense of abandon? Is it a sense of letting go, or is it something to do with pain? Or can it be both things um, simultaneously? Things as complicated as sadness or grief or anger are actually a sort of post hoc application of a very cultured framework to these you know pre-cultural like almost monkey-like or deeply animal urges to just you know they're just kind of you know these these inarticulate energies and I feel like the poem was always butting its head up against the that break that is always encountered when you're writing between like the somehow the inadequacy of something that exists and that is so cultured and so necessary kind of necessarily public to really, really encapsulate that deeply private, inarticulate sense of screaming. I, I am still fascinated with banshees, but what I needed to do to write specifically about them is that I needed to go back mm. and that these, these are the poems at the root of it, like why I was so interested in them. And I, and I, and I think that they are always depicted in the feminine, or at least as women, I should say. Um, like, why is that? Why, why aren't they men screaming? Um, and then thinking about the women that I am closest to, so my mom um, and my sister and myself. I think I, not kind of many different, but I think the myself in poems is a different sort of woman to who gets on the train or who wakes up. I don't know. Um, but so so thinking about those and and how how screaming, yeah, or you said grief or kind of uh, kind of a, a deep instinctual emotion kind of plays out and why and where in spirituality or in 
in myth, so kind of thinking about my own family myths and kind of what my mum says happens and you're kind of like, well, I don't think that can happen scientifically, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen that way. And particularly in families seem to be a crucible of the dynamic in which we use um, myths as a kind of certainty to paper over the cracks of truths that are either too painful to be uh, articulated or we we don't have the space from them to be able to see ourselves as continually telling stories as a as a means of survival that was something that struck me about the way in which you kind of you're always sort of looking back at yourself as well you, as you've rightly pointed out you're one of the main players in the poem as well as the kind of narrative voice there is something very compelling about um a poem as a means to allow yourself to see yourself as someone screaming rather than someone who has to pay the bills and has to just cope and has to just kind of keep going in a very basic sense yeah absolutely what i'm interested in is the way in which your poem and its kind of symbolic universe is very much a mishmash of the deeply personal the religious the mythic and the scientific it all seems to be this like competing narratives of trying to of trying to explain something so I guess I'm wondering why these sort of different angles felt like necessary that's the kind of that's how I uh grew up that there would be no so so my mother is um is is very religious and so there there were always kind of two worlds there is kind of the physical world and the spiritual world and they can you know they can chop and change sometimes I have to I was speaking to her a couple of days ago and she said um that such and such happened and I was like oh wow that's that's really weird and she was like and it only became apparent to me um, that it, she was actually talking about a dream later. It's like she'll flip between. <laughs> and and I, so sometimes I just check. I'm like, what, mum, in a dream or in like real life? <laughs> and she'll be like, no, in a dream. So then he did this and did it. And so it's still exactly what happens to her. Uh, you know, like it's, she still experiences it as if, so I can say that this is a dream. This is quite dreamscapey anyway. So today I went into a recording studio and I was looking at um, Eleanor across and she was asking me these questions. I am pretty dreamy. Yeah, yeah you are pretty dreamy. And then, and then it might, if I, if I then said this to my mum, she might check, like, this happened in a dream or? Because it might have some other kind of uh, meaning if it was in a dream. Like, what would this mean to sit here like this in a dream? Or if I, this hasn't happened yet and this was last night? And I'm dreaming this. Like, what what does it mean for the future? She just thinks that dreams are very prophetic. I believe so also because of her, I think. Um, and that they take on these different meanings. So I've grown up with this kind of continuous kind of uh, switching until the point that it doesn't really become switching. It's all very kind of the same. Yeah, there's like, it's it's very much not... A metaphor kind of thing what well, you know that there is that sort of incredible certainty for you like yeah of course like it, it happened in a dream but that doesn't that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's it all yeah a dream is is the form that it takes it's kind of mm. it's sort of a reversal of the way in which we i guess usually think about myth as well yes. as kind of like codifying yeah. some kind of truth in like metaphorical language and it's like actually it's a way of encountering your everyday reality as like already deeply symbolic i'm just kind of 
trying to yeah. think about like what a therapist would say yeah. <laughs> if I <laughs> yeah I'll turn you nuts quick but um <laughs> I've learned to see the poetry in it I rejected it for a long time like when I was um kind of a teenager I was like please mom's like stop that or if you go out late and then you come back it would be very much like um you know not just normal like right you're in trouble or right you're grounded now it would be like the devil is using you plus you're grounded you know so, <laughs> so like this kind of you this double punishment not only you, you know this kind of uh, that you've fallen from grace and then you've fallen from grace yeah. like in this kind of two two worlds and that would be very much like how you would kind of get in trouble as well it would be this kind of yeah you weren't just in trouble thing. with her you're in trouble with 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 god and i only started after rejecting that for so long like writing about this stuff only maybe only properly engaging with it maybe like this year I feel like maybe not living uh, anymore maybe that <laughs> but, and so it's only um my, maybe my way of still like going back um or just using the what you said about metaphor that that myth is and isn't metaphor or kind of like the, the stories that we tell each other or spirituality is and isn't metaphor dreams are and they aren't um depending on how much faith you put on them how much you believe in them it's funny that you say that you rejected it for a while because there is in animating i guess the poem this urge to reconcile with or even like forgive or understand i guess the the everyday tragedies animating what keeps bringing her back to these sorts of stories she's been told and she tells herself and she tells other people as a way of as a way of seeking some kind of comfort right as a as a way of i guess control is a bit of a is a bit overpedaling it but to have some kind of framework of understanding things that are you know just profoundly chaotic and terrifying like like disease like your body just kind of being totally out of control out of your own control is that something that you feel like you that resonates with you using uh a, your belief system as a framework to help you kind of survive. grapple with survive <laughs> yeah definitely i think what else do you do what yeah. else what else, <laughs> what else can can well, okay, there are other ways you can, you can like, I don't know, drink to cope or you can, I don't know, <laughs> it's bad relationships to cope or um, I suppose that's just her way and it, it must resonate with me if that's kind of the path that the work is taking um, at the moment and how how much I could still, like this could have been a sequence of about 15 million, like with the time, <laughs> like just because there's, there are just so many instances of, particularly with with my mum, using what you believe as a framework. Is that it? Doesn't is that not what we all do? Yeah, I mean, well, precisely. But it's 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 I guess not how we're used to thinking about it, right? Those are the options: poetry, religion, or alcoholism. Like <laughs> they're your three. They're your choice. Yeah, the Holy Trinity. <laughs> there are only three genders. Rachel, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. That's it for this week on Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. You can catch up on all our episodes, find out more about our writers and much more besides on our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. To keep up with all our work, you can follow 
at goodbyeworldpod on Twitter. You can bother me personally at Eleanor K. Penny. This project is kindly supported by the Arts Council England and the infinite patience of the good folks at Spread the Word. It is produced by Tom McAndrew and from all of us, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs>